Net Zero is in every sustainability conversation. Met with enthusiasm, then skepticism, the big question still missing a concrete answer is how? The scale of pledge and target setting is really exciting and really impressive, but the underlying theme to that is we also very quickly need to go from that to performance. Welcome to How to Net Zero, a podcast by impact verification organization SustainCert, looking at net zero through the lens of those who work to make it happen. What interventions can deliver the most meaningful change? How do we account for greenhouse gas interventions in our supply chain if we're launching them? How can we accurately translate data from upstream interventions into downstream scope three reporting? In each episode, we explore implementation challenges with industry experts, climate front runners, carbon gigs, and dive into promising approaches or innovation that can help overcome them. Hello, and a warm welcome to episode four of season two of How to Net Zero. This podcast brings together industry experts and climate frontrunners to explore the challenges we face in making net zero a reality. My name is Lucy von Sturmer. I'm the initiator of global nonprofit Creators for Climate and the founder of The Humble Brag, a climate communications consultancy. And I am thrilled to be the co-host of this podcast with Marion Ver, the CEO of SustainCert, a climate impact verifier on a mission to bring credibility to climate action through digital verification. In this second season of How to Net Zero, we've been talking about the credibility of the voluntary carbon market, probably one of the most hotly debated issues in sustainability right now. Indeed, Lucy, and in only three episodes, we've tackled a number of key issues like the contentious question of whether carbon markets are worth saving. We discussed that with WWF and the Gold Standard Foundation. We've also asked, is it possible to clean up the market with the chair of the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market Board, Annette Lazaret? And we concluded, yes, uh, it's possible to save the carbon market. We also heard where the market is heading from industry leaders at Innovate for Climate that took place earlier this year in Bilbao, Spain. Today, Marion is going to lead the discussion to find out if and how digital technologies can help scale the carbon market with integrity, speaking with visionary entrepreneurs who are paving the way for an industry transition and also exploring what drives these entrepreneurs and the challenges that need to be overcome to scale the impact of these solutions. Marion, before we dive in, what are you most looking forward to discussing today? Well, first and foremost, I'm looking forward to hearing from other climate tech entrepreneurs, people like me. Uh, I'd love to hear about their journeys, understand their challenges and how their solutions contribute to making carbon markets more credible. How can we work together to accelerate the change that we need to see in carbon markets? At Innovate for Climate, it was really refreshing to hear from a range of players everything that's happening to bring credibility to carbon markets. I was particularly inspired by the innovative financing mechanisms that the World Bank is implementing, for example. And most inspiring to me in Bilbao was the work that project developers like BNV Advisory, talking to Sandeep Chowdhury and hearing all the work he's doing on the ground to make carbon markets work for underserved communities. In this episode, I really want to focus on the specific role of tech how can technology can drive credibility in carbon markets? We all know how complex and resource intensive it can be to monitor, report, and verify those carbon projects. 
I'm personally a firm believer that technology can do this much better. We can replace people, Word documents, Excel spreadsheets, and PDF with satellite images, data processing, connected devices to really scale the carbon markets with integrity. So at SustainCert, we're really focusing on digitizing the V in MRV. And today I'm curious to hear what others are doing on the monitoring and reporting fronts. I think building on what you're saying, technology has you know, an important role to play in scaling up a lot of the climate solutions that are out there. Um, I know there are also a lot of skeptics, but I'm, I'm very interested to hear what comes out of this conversation. Let's dive in. Today, I'm privileged to be joined by two leaders who are developing innovative approaches to create trust and credibility in climate action through digital technologies. Rebecca Braswell is the CEO of Landlife Company, who are implementing a high-tech approach to smart reforestation. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And Oli Bolton, CEO of Earthly, a company that empowers organizations to regenerate the earth through science-backed innovative tools. Hi, Oli. Good to have you today. Hi, Marianne. Pleasure to be here. Great. So as you know, we're going to be talking today about how digital technologies can drive credibility in climate action and in carbon markets more specifically. So I'd like to understand how your respective companies play a role in driving credibility in climate action and in scaling climate impacts. Starting with you, Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit more about your journey with Land Life Company? What motivated you to start working in climate tech in the first place, I believe, nine years ago? What was the gap in the market that you wanted to fill back then? Absolutely. So I was working um, 10 years ago, I was working across the Middle East and Africa, largely on issues of food security and food production, right? After the global financial crisis, we had a global food crisis as well. Uh, prices going through the roof, making a lot, uh, you know, food out of reach for, for too many households. And so, you know, in that journey of, of looking at um, agricultural value chains, one of the issues around productivity was land degradation. And the real issue of land degradation across the globe, and it, it got to the point where I was tired of uh, of doing the analysis around it, uh, tired of writing the pitch deck for the regenerative agricultural farm uh, on avocados. I wanted to run the avocado farm myself, so that was my sort of personal indication that that I needed to really get my hands dirty in a very literal sense. And got connected uh, to the founder of Land Life just as they were pulling together their initial team on this bold mission to help restore the world's 2 billion hectares of degraded land. And having seen it firsthand, having um, witnessed how this was going to interrupt our human lives, not just you know nature, but uh, interfere with global food production, it just became a very important and critical issue, let alone the climate benefits that restoring land um, and restoring nature could produce. You have this very bold mission indeed, uh, Rebecca, you mentioned it, restoring the world's 2 billion hectare of degraded land. Uh, it's an amazing and very inspiring mission. So how do you do this in simple words? How do you use technology to unlock uh, impact at such a scale? Yes. So as you can imagine, I mean, that's all the degraded land worldwide. It's the size of the U.S. and China put together. So we have no ambition to do it alone. Uh, and I think that that is what's core to land life. We are trying to make it possible. We would love to see thousands more land lifes pop up and uh, join us in this restoration work. 
But this is also where our focus on technology is really kind of a key accelerator to making this mission possible, whether we do it ourselves or another uh, another organization uses the tech that we have developed to help their restoration efforts. This is how we think that we can make it achievable. So we, we restore our own landscapes across Australia, Iberia, and North America. Those are largely where our hubs are today. But we are hoping that the, the work that we're doing in remote sensing in kind of impact modeling for nature restoration, so not just carbon sequestration, but also biodiversity impacts uh, amongst others, can help others plan and execute their restoration efforts at scale. So how do you see that happening concretely? How can your tools and your solutions be used by others to scale action? Yes. So what we do is we think about using technology across the value chain. So that is the design of restoration efforts, the implementation of restoration efforts, as well as the monitoring, so that you create this kind of virtuous circle of feedback and learning to understand how you can do your job better in the field every planting season, right? So we start with the design. We've developed a remote sensing dashboard that literally allows our engineers to assess a landscape before going to the field. They look at the plantable area, they look at slopes, they think about planting densities. It saves hours and hours and hours of time before even going to the field to understand what the restoration potential is of each of each given landscape. We then developed our own um, impact model that then will look at that landscape, look at the different species combinations, the different densities that we could plant at. And we run that model about 200 times to help figure out what is the optimal planting design. Because I think there's a lot of focus on on planting trees um, and on restoring nature, but there's not enough thought put into the how. Because if we don't think about the right design, right, you're, you're restoring nature that took millennia to create and to develop. And we're, you know, we're attempting to do it from, uh, from scratch, often on landscapes that have been hurt by wildfire, by over-farming, by urbanization. So the how we do it is really important. And we invest a lot in our technology to help simulate and understand what is the best possible nature restoration design. Because uh, as you know, a lot of tree planting projects can go, can go south if you're planting monocultures, if you're planting at the wrong time with the wrong species in the wrong place, we're not going to achieve the climate impact that we're, that we're setting out to achieve. So we use yeah. tech a lot to help us understand the how. We then use it in the field. So I think we're one of the, the few companies out there that have invested in hardware. So how can we help uh, improve the survival rates of tree seedlings once they're actually planted? Is there a way to bring the nursery to the field? So we think a lot about incubation and how to help give these seedlings their best chance and their best leg up once they've been, uh, once they've been planted. And we've used our cocoon technology to help uh, establish tree seedlings. And now we are experimenting with our shuttle technology to bring our seeds directly, uh, uh, directly to the field so that it can germinate at the right time. And then lastly, we need to monitor and to understand what's going on. So we've developed our own app. It's very simple to use. It geotags our trees. We, we track not only the survival rates, but also the vigor. Because there are a lot of MRV solutions out there. They use a lot of satellite data, but there are not a lot of solutions yet set up completely for new tree plantings. And what we need to figure out is, are the actions we're taking today working? You can look at old forests, and that's very helpful, but there are not a lot of tech solutions out there that help us figure out, um, you know, how was this planting that was just planted six, nine months ago? How is it doing? Was it done correctly? Is it going to have the environmental impact we hope it will have? So we've had to develop this stuff in-house. Um, we're happy for other people to use our technology, uh, and we certainly think it helps 
scale not only our ability to plant and restore, but our understanding of what's happening on the ground. Amazing. Thanks, Rebecca. And I'm fully with you on the fact that the how is really, really important because all tree planting projects aren't equal. If you do it the yes. wrong way, you're not having uh, a lasting impact and you can't really scale your impact either. So the how is really critical and it's great to see that you're focusing on that as well. How far are you on your mission? Uh, how far are you towards the two billion? Are you uh, <laughs> well tracking that progress? We or? are tracking it. No, of course we're tracking it. So our our impact on the on the land itself is is a drop in the bucket compared to what we what we uh, we need to achieve. So we're planting uh, ten to fifteen thousand hectares of land, um, and this leads to all of the issues that uh, technology cannot solve, which is engagement with people on the ground. It is. Um, creating nurseries that can operate and provide seedlings at scale. There's a lot around land access agreements, permitting things that really need to be streamlined in order to help companies like ours and others out there uh, plant better uh, and faster and at a larger scale. Thanks, Rebecca. Turning to you, Oli. So same, similar question. How did you get into the climate tech uh, space, what motivated you to start Earthly in the first place? Yeah, I think, you know, like a lot of people, it was really um, family um, that, that kind of really led me here to start with. And it was shortly after the birth of my son in 2018, we had the IPCC's one and a half degrees report. And that's when I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur from the sort of food and health industry. So, you know, relatively new to the sector. But yeah, from reading the IPCC report and you know, the birth of my son, I suddenly sort of, you know, not only realized the, you know, the critical situation that, that humanity was in, but thought ahead about future conversations with my son, where maybe he would challenge me and my generation about the lack of action that we'd taken. And those kind of future conversations really inspired me to, yeah, to pivot my career into climate tech. And at Earthly, the sort of two lenses we look through are firstly, you know, how can we create something that will make a dent in the climate and biodiversity crises? And secondly, how can we add value to the ecosystem? There's a lot of amazing innovation. And so we've really thought long and hard about the, the gaps and you know, the, the things that we can do to help accelerate uh, funding towards nature. So, so what specifically are you unlocking with technology only that wouldn't be possible otherwise? What's the uniqueness um, that you've worked on and, and taken to market since uh, the start of Earthly? Yeah, you know, at the heart of, of our platform sits our project quality assessment tool that we've developed over the last two years. And it's a, it's a really holistic quality screening tool that can screen any nature-based project. It's agnostic to ecosystem, it's agnostic to... Um, certification body, um, and it essentially looks at 106 quality indicators, a third are in carbon, a third are in biodiversity, and a third are in people. And we look at the evidence that we can ob obtain. We have a, a data stack that looks at public data, proprietary data from private sources, geospatial, um, and then more innovative MRV like eDNA and, and bioacoustic. And in essence, we stack it and we run our assessment and, you know, we screened 350 projects to date and uh, only 8% have met our minimum standards. But we very much want to work with project developers and, and feedback, you know, where the opportunities for improvement are and, and where the gaps are and, and perhaps the, the work they're doing. And um, that's how we can really, you know, we really feel we can help 
add value by building trust um, and kind of moving the bar higher across the project developer ecosystem. So are those projects, because only 8% out of 360 or so is, is uh, 8% is a small number. So, so what are those projects? Would it be possibly projects that Rebecca is working on or projects that NGOs, conservation NGOs are working on? Can you tell us a little bit more about what are those projects and why is this uh, percentage uh, success rate so low in your view? Yeah, and, and again, we screen all types of projects. So, you know, the, the, the main platforms being Gold Standard, Vera, um, Plan Vivo, you know, as well as more innovative projects that are on the path to sort of certification and a more early stage. The typical reasons are, you know, the, the, the reasons that we've sort of read, read about in, in the press recently. It can include overcrediting. Uh, could include uh, lack of community engagement, involvement, free and prior informed consent. It can include species suitability that Re Rebecca mentioned. You know, and, and we now know the importance of um, of planting the right things or conducting the right interventions in, in the right locations. Um, so I think it's uh, you know it's been really really fascinating, and you know for us very much at the beginning of, of our journey at Earthly, the reason why we built the assessment is we saw a lot of you know, a range in quality, um, you know, th through some of the you know, larger registries that we were screening. And so, you know, we sort of felt that, that there needed to be some kind of mechanism to help us identify the highest um, scoring and the most impactful projects. Um, and essentially, you know, we, we feel that we're custodians of the businesses we work with and the money that they're sort of spending and you know, investing towards nature. So we want to make sure that they're supporting projects that We'll have maximum impact and we'll survive and thrive in the in the decades to come. Great. Thanks, Oli. That, that's fascinating um, to see how you can basically identify uh, the uh, highest impact project um, uh, in an automated and, um, and consistent way across the board. Um, I'm curious to understand from, from both of you uh, whether carbon markets play an important role in your respective business models. We've talked about carbon markets a lot in this podcast, and we are obviously, as a climate impact verifier, really focused on driving credibility in this specific market. Uh, so, Oli, for you, that's, that's a very important market, right? Because most of the projects you're screening are carbon market projects. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's correct. And, you know, the, the majority of the the sort of inbound interest we have from businesses is carbon related. Having said that, you know, there's been a real influx this year in, in um, biodiversity credits, biodiversity net gain credits for the compliance market in the UK because we have um, legislation coming into play in November for the built environment. Their developments over a certain size have to have a 10% extra uh, biodiversity net gain, so 110% offset. So that's, that's quite an exciting um, sort of evolution that's happening here in the UK. And conversely, we're seeing more and more businesses that have a low carbon footprint come to us and say, look, we want to protect and restore nature. We're really keen to, um, you know, allocate money towards uh, biodiversity credits. And I think what's exciting for us is, you know, we're still seeing a lot of customers coming to us for net zero commitments and looking to access high quality projects to meet those, you know, meet, meet those future needs. But, it, but increasingly, we're seeing companies come to us and say, look, we want to commit 1% of revenues to nature, you know, so not linked to a footprint, um, these kind of open-ended um, sort of nature integrations into their business models, you know, almost the start perhaps of, of movement towards more regenerative businesses who are, 
you know, looking to give back more to the planet, more than they need to take to exist and run their companies. What is your take, Rebecca, on carbon markets? Are you also engaging with carbon markets? Do you see those markets as a source of funding for the activities you're implementing on the ground? Are you like Oli also looking at new uh, upcoming types of markets like biodiversity credits? Yes, absolutely. No, so for us, the voluntary carbon market is a funding model for us, which we disaggregate from our operating model. And we are very, very clear about that. So we are a nature restoration company. Um, the carbon market is an effective funding and scaling mechanism for us. But we believe that nature restoration produces not only a climate impact, but also a biodiversity and community impact. And it's a real shame that those carbon markets today do not recognize that broader value. And, and you see wonderful signs of that changing, right? And a lot of working groups uh, and the rise of the biodiversity market that uh, Ollie was just talking about, expanding that viewpoint. And what I hope is that we do it in an expansive way and in a holistic way, instead of saying, you are a carbon project and you are a biodiversity project and you help communities. That would be a shame. Right. If we don't look at this, how they all reinforce each other and how we need them to to reinforce each other. So for us, yes, we use the, the voluntary carbon market to help fund our projects. Um, but our customers come to us because the impact of the nature restoration we do uh, extends way beyond just the, the climate impact. Before we double click on, on that, on how can we use technology to drive credibility in the way we measure impact. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we can broaden beyond carbon and whether uh, uh, you have made sort of um, strides there. I'd love to spend a few minutes to, to hear about your uh, journeys with uh, your respective companies. Uh, we're all pioneering uh, new solutions in a market that very often isn't ready uh, for our solutions. So this is a a daily conversation here at SustainCert uh, when we look at digital uh, verification, to what extent are uh, stakeholders ready uh, to embrace uh, those new ways of working. Uh, so I'm sure you face quite a number of challenges yourselves in your respective journeys. I'd love to hear um, about maybe one or two challenges uh, that you felt would be most relevant uh, to the conversation and to our audience and how uh, you've overcome it, something that could maybe help uh, the community and, uh, and help others learn from. Rebecca, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so when we started Land Life nine years ago, it, there wasn't really even climate tech, let alone nature tech. And um, we, oh, we had to do a lot of pounding of pavement and a lot of market education. And I'm really grateful for that time because we also got to experiment a lot. So we got to learn what worked and also, and also what did not work. And that was a real luxury to have that time and to be able to build and to, and to learn. And, you know, you end up working with the kind of forward-leaning, innovative uh, companies out there who, who, you know, you find like for like. And that's just what you have to do in the beginning. Um, you need to find people who are bought into your mission, who are bought into the technology enabling your mission. I think that always excites and that always motivates. And uh, and you need to be willing to take some risks, right? Uh, we're not going to solve this. Uh, we're not going to solve this crisis by always knowing 100% what we're doing before we do. The best is to have a good process to understand and to do our best in trying to understand. But we need to prioritize uh, action, thoughtful action over perfection. And I think that that's, um, you know, that's some of the philosophy that we've, uh, that we've taken here at Land Life. Um, but for us, you know, it was quite the journey. It was a hard to make the business model work. 
for us, uh, that change to focus on removals really finally cemented the value of what we were doing. So, um, you know, the, the, the focus of the world on understanding it's not just avoiding CO2 emissions, but it's actually removing them. And there's no greater tool than a treat than to take CO2 out of the air and let alone all of the other positive impacts that it, uh, that it creates. But it was definitely some heavy lifting. It's still heavy lifting, right? So now I think we've, we've proven that we can scale what we do through one model, but that model sometimes, as I just mentioned, is imperfect, right? Uh, the impact that we create is broader. So sometimes it can still feel like shoving a round peg in a square hole, um, but we're happy to do it. You know, we're happy to, we're happy to show what, what is possible. And I think that that is really the spirit of land life, show that it's possible, set out the big ambition, 2 billion hectares of degraded land. Who else is going to join us in that journey and what can we learn from each other? That, that's really inspiring. And uh, indeed, nine years, uh, close to 10 years of, uh, of experience. You were one of the first, one of, or even maybe the pioneer at the time. Um, Oli, what was your biggest challenge or biggest learning uh, since you uh, started Earthly? I think we've always been aware about the trust issue from the beginning. And you know, we're, we're a very young company. We're three years into our, our journey. And that's something that we're still you know, really focused on. And, you know, as we, as we know this year, there's been, you know, various press and media um, around trust and integrity that that's, you know, so, so I think our, our big, big challenge is still trying to give companies the confidence to invest into nature and to not be scared to, to do anything, you know, because of, 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 of worries of greenwashing. And, and actually, if it's the right projects and it's the right ecosystems interventions that are suitable to the locations where they're based, that they should just, you know, start to make contributions because of the funding gap you have to, to, towards nature. I also think a challenge that, you know, we, we've, we've always had and continue to have is the sort of fragmentation, the, the, the different groups, the different methodologies and it's the typical sustainability manager that we, 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 we talk to, you know, they're, they're confused and there's a lot of um, sort of yeah, fragmentation in our industry. And so I think, um, you know, what we are starting to see now is groups come together to kind of build consensus around what are the best methodologies for different interventions and ecosystems. And, you know, I really welcome more kind of you know more of a global framework about how we can approach things so that can take away you know some of the confusion perhaps that we have out there um so one of the things that we're doing is we're working with the bsi um on a with a working group uh, with regards to nature-based solutions and, and again trying to bring some consensus to different methodologies um, around different interventions with you know hopefully with a view that it could move to an iso standard that could be globally rec recognized one day um And I think on the assessment, you know, it doesn't just sort of, sort of, it, it's open-ended. And, and one of the things that we're really excited about is looking at climate risk. We're aware that there's a certain amount of baked-in temperature, weather changes to be anticipated over the next couple of decades and beyond. So we want to make sure that we're, um, we're recommending the right ecosystems and interventions based on the right geographies. And, and in some cases, it might be focusing on resilience or adaptation. And you know, our objective is just to make sure that The projects that our clients are funding, you know, survive and thrive with these anticipated changes that we that we have to expect in the coming decades. Thanks, Oli. And your point on the fragmentation of the ecosystem does resonate quite a bit uh, with me. And, and this is something we're, we're hearing a lot and that we're also experiencing quite a bit. There's um, quite a large number of 
carbon market methodologies, new standards are coming up, and there's a really very deep need, I would say, for standardization and for um, alignment of the ecosystem around one benchmark uh, that would be endorsed by everyone. Yeah. And, and I was uh, speaking to Annette Lazaret, the chair of the ICVCM board, the Integrity Council on the Voluntary Carbon Market. And I do expect and hope that the ICVCM uh, will provide uh, that benchmark uh, because that would be a really strong move towards uh, scaling the industry without uh, standardization. We uh, won't be able to scale as fast. Uh, what's your take on, on the evolution of the ecosystem over the last years? Uh, uh, we're seeing new players uh, come up uh, very, very frequently. Um, every other month, there's a new tech, climate tech company active in this space. Uh, restoration, uh, conservation, proposing a new solution. Uh, Rebecca, do you do you welcome that? Is this a threat? Is this an opportunity? Do you ignore it? How do you uh, approach this? Oh, we love it. We, we're so excited by it, right? So we're we're a vertically integrated supplier that uses tech across the value chain, and to see kind of these spot players uh, pop up. Um, means that the the market is developing. It's becoming more sophisticated. We um, we often look at our journey as sort of the path that renewables took. You know, 20 years ago, you had one company designing your wind turbine, building it, installing it, fixing it when it broke down. Um, and now that is a very sophisticated supply chain broken into thousands of different suppliers for one wind turbine. And for us, seeing that these new companies are coming on board, is a great sign that that the market is uh, the market is developing, and I always say it's going to make our job easier. I would love to compete against other nature restoration companies and show them that our design is more climate resilient and more robust against wildfire instead of trying to convince someone to invest in nature for the first time. I would rather say, no, if you're you're, you're clearly bought into nature, that's fantastic. You've been investing in this space. Here's why land life offers the best solution out there, and that's a much easier conversation. Um, so we, we really welcome it. This is a huge challenge and we would love to get more ideas and more people involved. So on that point, Rebecca, how do you make sure, how can we collectively make sure that this competition drives a race to the top as opposed to a race to the bottom? No, that is that is a hard part because sometimes we do see other developers or other solutions pop up that, well, you know, you scratch a little bit below the surface and, and there's not much there and you think, shoot. Uh, this is not going to be. This is not going to be credible for the for the market, uh, and this could this could send some poor signals. So I think you know it is around those standards that you were talking about. It is around those strong market signals about what quality looks like that will help us keep that keep that bar high. And you know I think the the work that, for example, Ollie is doing on reviewing these projects, it sends feedback into the system because once he's looking at a project, it's already done. It's already completed, right? And so we need to find out what he is learning from reviewing all these projects that were initiated previously in time to inform what people like Landlife and myself are doing today. And that is that feedback loop that we really need to create. So it's both holding that bar really high, but also making sure that that feedback loop is, uh, is functioning well. And I think that that will hopefully raise the, the bar of all the suppliers out there. Oli, what's your take on race to the bottom versus race to the top? And how do you contribute uh, as Earthly directly to creating this feedback loop that can drive the race to the top? 
yeah, look, certainly see it as a race to the top. And the way that we've designed our platform is we can ingest as much data about nature as and projects as you know as, as possible and sort of stack that information. And so we always want new data sources to help us understand if something's high integrity or high quality. And I think the more people that that are tackling the sort of same issues, the better solutions that we're going to find, and the quicker we're going to find them. And I think the, the stepping back, I'm also aware like we're all on the same side in a way in this sector. We all want the same thing, and I'm also aware of the time sensitivities of of achieving our goals. And so I think the more people that that can put their heads behind the problems and come up with solutions and advance the technology, the better for all of us. And do you use the results of your assessments only to, are you feeding that back to project developers? Do you feel that some of them are actually curious to find out why they scored, how they scored and taking this on as an improvement opportunity? Do you see that mindset? Yes, absolutely. That's the big difference, I think, between us and the pure play ratings Uh, platforms out there is we we want to have a two-way relationship we want to feedback we want projects to learn we want projects to improve and uh you know across the board and to make sure that there's enough supply of high high quality um credits and 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 projects out there to you know to meet the, the future needs of um you know businesses and organizations around the world but you know we're also in a unique position that we're learning a lot from the developers we're speaking to and so we we have an opportunity to share best practice and You know, share how others are tackling similar challenges that, that, that people in different parts of the world are facing with similar ecosystems, as an example. Thanks, Oli. And that's a really nice segue into our core uh, topic uh, for today. And, and the reason why the three of us are, are talking today is because we, we all believe that technology can be an amazing driver of credibility and scalability in climate action. Uh, we can leverage technology to much more accurately measure Uh, report and verify climate impacts that are happening on the ground. Um, so I'm keen to understand from your perspective, Rebecca, one of the challenge we hear from the, the community is that uh, from a customer or a funder perspective, it's often really difficult to know which technology can be trusted. If I'm financing a tree planting project, how do I know? Uh, who I can trust and which platform or solution will do the best job at measuring the impacts uh, on the ground. So I can, of course, look at the Earthly's website and then figure out uh, which are the 8% of the project that score highest uh, and make the Earthly bar. Um, how do you deal with that at Life? Uh, I know you mentioned earlier you've developed a model that estimates how much carbon can be potentially sequestered in the forest that are being uh, planted. So how do you know for sure this model is the most reliable in the market and how do you communicate uh, that reliability and convince your customers and your partners that indeed this is the most yeah, reliable? Absolutely. So one of the things about our model is that it really combines both technology but also science. 
And I think that it is really important to keep mentioning that word when we're talking about nature-related solutions, uh, because science is on-the-ground knowledge that has been tested over time. Uh, we work with a lot of academics in this space um, because they have such a rigorous approach to data collection and data analysis. So we can pull in all of the NFI data from around the world, but to understand what we should be doing on our landscapes, we really have to get site-specific. And I would say that that is the biggest gap um, between tech and data that we have now and what's needed on the ground is that it is still at a regional level. It is still at a national level. And I want to know what to do on that north-facing slope. And that's where science comes in. That's where our resilience engineers are extremely useful in helping us build those designs. So I think you really need to also just focus on that intersection of science and technology. You need robust data sets and you need site-specific data sets. And then you need to run those simulations. I think we run ours about 200 times to figure out what the optimal planting design is. And then we ask for it to be peer-reviewed. So we have um, a scientific advisory board. Uh, it's um, made up of uh, professors from all of the geographies in which we work. They are representing their institutions, so they are not, you know, paid consultants. They are representing their, their actual universities, and they provide pretty brutal feedback on our work on a regular basis, and it's great. And this is how we learn, and this is how we get better, and it's very collaborative. Um, but we make sure that we set up that distance between our work and those who are reviewing it so that we get that, we get that feedback, and we make sure that we combine the power of technology and all of its computations and ability to look at data from all over the world with a very local understanding of what's required. I'd love to uh, be a fly on the wall in one of the uh, scientific uh, advisory committee meetings that you're having to understand where yeah. you draw the line between scientific integrity and commercial acceptability and, and business model considerations because you could always aim for scientific perfection. Yeah. Um, uh, and the question is always, where do you draw the bar? But for sure, as you said, aiming for site-specific data is a huge uh, already commitment to scientific integrity and data integrity. We're all uh, for that as well. Uh, we're advocating for supplier-specific data when it comes to scope three reporting uh, as much as possible. So for sure, using... Um, uh, highly specific data sets is a key uh, component uh, of credibility and quality. What's your take, Rebecca, on independent third-party verification? Is that helpful at all uh, to demonstrate the credibility of your work and your model? Is this something you're using or you're considering? Yes, it's, it's needed and it's necessary. Um, and we, um, we use the auditors. I think the challenge is it's slow. There are not enough of them. I mean, if if my work also took off in 2020, then their work also took off in 2020, right? So um, they're very busy. There's a huge backlog. And the last thing you want to do is to have those bottlenecks slow down project development. Uh, uh, you really want it to stimulate the sector. So we are certainly hoping that... Um, that data uh, and technology can play a huge role in that third-party verification over time because it's a lot of effort. I mean, one of our auditors just went um, to Australia to visit our sites in the field. I mean, these are huge geographies you're trying to cover by foot on some level, and we need to, we need to find more scalable solutions. There are a lot of great efforts underway that will combine that knowledge that that auditor brings to the field, having seen, you know, planting projects from all over the world that is unique and inherent to their skill set 
with hopefully much uh, a broader view uh, through satellite and other remote sensing uh, uh, solutions that can that can verify the integrity of the work. So it's it's definitely needed. It comes in all different forms. A lot of fragmentation here as well, um, and we just need to invest behind this capability in the sector so that it can be more robust and it can be more accessible. I think that's really the issue. Would you say there's a lack of digitally enabled or digitally assisted uh, verification solutions out there that you have to go back to manual and analog processes to comply with the verification requirements when you could go digital if they were equipped? Yeah, I, uh, I don't know if that. it's a lack of solutions because I think a lot of people have tried. I think, um, and I'm no expert in this area, but our, our issue is really how low to the ground can you get, right? So what is the square meter that you're looking at? Because new projects, say, for example, we want to verify our estimates uh, with biomass um, creation in the field to double check our estimates. I mean, the trees have to grow to a certain Uh, level and before you're able to do that. And right now, a lot of the remote sensing solutions out there just cannot get the granularity around the data that we would find useful. If that force is mature in 20 years, of course, there are solutions out there for that. But years zero to five, five to 10, it's, it's a bit more difficult depending on where you're, where you're operating. So I think that's where we hope to see a lot of in, uh, information allow us to zoom in <laughs> a bit more, if you will, because I think that the frameworks are out there to enable it. Um, but I just think that the technology needs to improve a bit more. What's your take on that, Oli, on um, the role mm. of tech in driving credibility in carbon markets? And knowing all the projects that you're engaging with or assessing, have you seen an increase in their willingness to adopt and embrace dig digital technologies in the last years? What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a huge catalyst towards quality and integrity and, and yeah we're seeing a great appetite from project developers that we're dealing with to to trial new technologies you know innovative mrv to evidence the the positive changes that are happening within their projects uh, just as a, as a side note to rebecca's comments you know i was i was amazed at the range and quality of auditors through the screen some of the, the projects that we've investigated and you know, i always assumed that that actually sometimes you know an auditor can can, can be um Can contribute towards you know a, a project sort of failing our assessment, and and conversely you know on the scientific side of things we were in a very lucky position at the beginning of our journey to get advice from Professor Nat Seddon at the University of Oxford and she was she said to me look Ollie the first thing you've got to do is build a scientific board, and so again com com completely uh, you know agree with um, Rebecca about we should be led by the science we should we should be led by the academics and. We've been very lucky to have eight different um, academics across different skill sets across the nature-based solution space that have fed into our assessment and you know, and very closely into the way that we operate. Um, and I think you know the, the challenge that we see ahead is we're ingesting so much data now. It's about screening it and, and, and assess, it's a, analyzing it in an efficient manner. And so a big focus for us is now looking at you know how can we use LLMs and, and AI to you know, improve the accuracy. An efficiency of, of, of screening the, the data that we're now receiving. You, you talked about the um, uh, potential um, of technology to, to drive and accelerate the, the rollout of high-quality carbon projects on the ground, uh, Oli, and, and you're seeing more appetite um, recently. In your view, what's holding back widespread adoption of those solutions? I think there's two things. I think first is the cost. Um, you know, who pays for it? 
should it be should it be the developers should it be the businesses investing so i think that's definitely an element and i and i think the second area is is you know it's early early stages as there's a few different approaches people are taking and i and i think going back to our conversation earlier about having a bit of consensus in the market if we use bioacoustics you know these are the models to use um these are the baselines that that make sense for this region and this ecosystem um so i think as soon as we have more consensus around best practice and that's going to really help the adoption of these things what role do you see for verification bodies like sustainset only going forward yeah i think there's i think there's a there's a there's a critical role you know going back to the the trust piece that we've been talking about earlier and and the fact that people are confused businesses are confused and so they're they're looking for for guidance and support and advice to kind of navigate this this industry that we're all operating in so don't see that changing anytime soon yeah and as as you both said we're still facing some of the limitations of um, of our own knowledge uh, as an industry we still need to align on uh, what are best practices uh, where to set the baseline uh, can we get technology to give us higher resolution information so that we can uh, monitor smaller trees uh, uh, than today uh, before we wrap up i'd love to hear your thoughts on um, what would you do if you were um, a VC investor uh, looking to accelerate that space in which segment of the value chain or in which specific segment of the ecosystem would you invest to drive uh, an acceleration of our, uh, of our ecosystem, an acceleration of uh, the deployment and development of digital technologies for uh, credible climate action? Where would you invest if you were a VC investor? I, look, I'm really excited by nature tech as a kind of subset of climate tech. And, and obviously I'm very biased, but yeah, I'm seeing some really exciting projects. And if I was a VC, I'd have a nature tech fund, you know, to specifically support that subsector. And th through our work, I'm kind of meeting a lot of startups and people working on innovation, you know, nature related, biodiversity related MRV. And so I, I personally believe that the biodiversity market will be bigger than the carbon market. And so if, if a VC is focusing on that space, I think that's what I would do if I had a VC in the money. Awesome. Thanks. Super insightful. Thanks, Oli. Rebecca, where would you invest? I think if we take nature as a given, which Oli has uh, set, the, set the framing for, which is useful, I would really invest in... Um, the design areas where something besides just technology and data is required. You're either combining data and technology with operations or you're connecting data and technology with science. Because I do think MRV will be commoditized at a certain point. Um, these, are, these are easy things to replicate once they've been established, right? So they're very difficult to develop, but they are easier to copy and to replicate over time. So if I had a VC hat on, I would look at where are the intersections in this space that are going to be unique and harder for people to, to, to replicate over time and are going to provide the most value, right? The most value is at that intersection, either of tech and ops or, or uh, tech and science. So that's where, uh, that's where I would put my money. Thank you so much, Rebecca and Oli, for joining me on this episode. It was really, truly inspiring and heartening to engage with fellow climate tech leaders and hear about the amazing work uh, that you're both doing on the ground. It gives me hope and energy to keep going. 
so as a final word from each of you, I'd love to hear you tell us uh, in a few words, what does success uh, look like for you in 12 months from now? What would you like to see happen either uh, with your respective companies or globally that would be able to uh, make you say, yes, uh, we've made progress, we've achieved something uh, over the last 12 months? I think what I would really love to see is nature accepted as a framework and to have the word nature used everywhere and that we stop disguising it by just carving out pieces of it. Um, so I'm really inspired by, uh, you know, um, the different legislation that we see coming through. So the EU just passed the EU nature restoration law. There's a nature repair law under consideration in Australia. And I think it will help us achieve the quality goals and the integrity goals that we've talked about today. I think it will help us think more holistically and more broadly beyond just carbon. And to give kind of that investor confidence that this uh, nature is not, um, it's something that we enjoy, that we inspire, that we use considerably for our own consumption, but it can therefore also be a business concept. It can be an investable asset we understand how it works, how it doesn't work, and that some things are going to be outside of our control and that we become comfortable with that and that that is what nature is supposed to do. And then we have benefited from that beauty, uh, you know, as long as we have existed. Um, but I think recognizing that in business domains, in global discourse, being comfortable with the concept of nature and not trying to boil it down to just the periodic table elements and understanding how they work holistically together I think will give a lot of confidence and trust that we've been talking about today. And I think for me, it's yeah, it's it's, it's to continue to move away from kind of carbon tunnel vision and to look at the holistic picture of of, of, of biodiversity and people. And I think what I would love to see is you know businesses not being scared to invest into nature. You know, perhaps to to start to make contributions, not necessarily linked to a footprint. But, you know, what I'd love to see in 12 to 18 months is more companies, you know, committing to be regenerative companies, giving back more to the planet than they need to take to exist and inspiring other businesses to sort of do the same thing. Uh, and, and, yeah, this sort of regenerative um, business leadership would be an amazing thing for us to, to kind of get going. Thanks, Oli. Thanks, Rebecca. I had goosebumps listening to your closing remarks. And, yes, we can make it happen. That's why we get up and go to work. Every day. Thank you so much for your time and insights today. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank, Thanks you, so Thank you for having me. Cheers. Well, you see, it won't come as a surprise that I really loved this discussion. It's incredibly hard work getting a business off the ground, never mind one that's based on a new and improving concept. And so we've been, and we're going through that at SustainCert. The world clearly needs more Rebecca's and Ollie's. Reflecting on this conversation, I would say that I really strongly agree with Rebecca's point. The how with technology is so important and so under-discussed. We can have the best tech in the world, but working in isolation, it's nothing. It won't achieve any impact. Land's life example is really telling. Rebecca shared how LandLife ensures that their tech supports the best possible restoration design. We all know that technology alone won't address the fundamentals around engaging people on the ground, 
creating nurseries run by people, by communities that can grow seedlings at scale and ensure their survival. There are still many, many steps in the chain that cannot be dealt with by tech only. So the how, how we use tech and how we use it in a way that significantly enhances the design of those projects on the ground is really, really important. I also fully agree with Rebecca when she says that we need to prioritize thoughtful action over perfection. We talked about that in an earlier episode. Carbon markets aren't perfect and won't be perfect ever. What's really important is that we embrace a mindset of continuous improvement. Rebecca also highlighted that for real climate action, technology and science need to go hand in hand, and I also fully support that. I really appreciate uh, taking a balanced view on technology also. There can be some enthusiasts that see technology as a silver bullet solution, so I really appreciated the discussion in terms of uh, communities and people um, and how these technologies are rolled out. I wanted to ask you about, you know, you spoke about continuous improvement, and so I wanted to ask you about trust and credibility and specifically what this means for monitoring, reporting and verification. Um, what, did, what did the guests have to say and what are your concluding thoughts and scaling carbon markets with integrity? So clearly monitoring, reporting and verification, to me, Lucia, at the core of the trust and the credibility of carbon market, we cannot get away without monitoring, reporting and verification. The question is how can we make it even more robust and more credible than it is today? And hearing Rebecca and Oli, it's clear that technology has a key role to play there. They both agreed that monitoring, reporting, and verification are key to building high integrity and trustworthy carbon markets. And they're also key to scaling nature tech. How do you know if a model is doing what it is supposed to do and producing high accuracy estimates if no one is verifying it? Policy and finance also need to shift towards creating a supportive environment for digital MRV because clearly the current level playing field, the current rules and requirements around MRV aren't suitable for digital technology solutions. So we need to create a new level playing field and that's where policy and finance are required. I would add, and that, that won't surprise you, Lucy, that I think we need to remain humble and critical that every new solution that comes in, every new tech that comes in, will have benefits and limitations. And so we need to continue to look at our safeguards, at our requirements to make sure that the credibility goes up, that we're actively engaging in a race to the top. And that requires deep humility and also the ability to look critically at our own work. Overall, I must say I'm excited and energized to see so many new businesses embrace digitization, digital MRV, and so many people like Rebecca and Oli fully committed to drive forward climate action in a credible way. At the same time, frankly, we're not there yet. And none of us can have meaningful impact without a full ecosystem, fully empowered to drive that credibility. So we need funding for our own businesses and we need also more financial investments in carbon markets and in climate action on the ground. For this investment to flow, I do think that it's very critical that we all collectively embrace verification as a means to provide trust that climate impacts are happening on the ground. 
Third-party verification, to me, is the bedrock of scaling carbon markets with integrity. So clearly, what we see, uh, talking to Rebecca and Oli, is that the market is growing, but remains very, very young and very nascent. And we need action fast. We need all the innovation we can get. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how we can learn from and grow together as a nature tech industry. There's much convergence and scaling yet to come. Mm-hmm.